Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. We are a podcast about the classical world, classical education, and talking about old things like they're new things. Well, that's not really. No. We're we? we no, no, talking, we about, talking old about them like they're old. Yeah. Yep. Um, but, but, um, but with the excitement as if they were new. Uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like talking about your old vacuum cleaner like it was brand new. That's right. Um, actually, Thomas, uh, pro parenting tip. I don't have okay, children. Great. Yeah, sure. Um, but let's say you buy your child. Let's say your child owns 10 toys. 10 toys. Okay, good. Here's a little trick. Is it a math problem? Um, take five of those toys okay. and hide them. Okay. Put them in the, put them in the attic mm-hmm. so the child doesn't know that they're there. Mm-hmm. Let him play with five toys. And when that kid gets like flipping bored of those five toys, take them away. Give him those five other toys. Mm-hmm. And he's going to be like, oh my goodness, new toys. Plays with those, gets bored of those, put them away, mm-hmm. take the other five back. And he's like, oh, these things. I love these things. Mm-hmm. You have to buy tools. You're saying it like a joke. That's my my brother-in-law and my sister do this. It absolutely works. Sure, absolutely, you take absolutely. half their toys, box them up, and they you know they'll freak out a little bit. But you're like, hey, or they won't just, even notice. Yeah, I'll give them. I'll give them back in a little while. They're bored of them anyway. Like they don't care. Yeah. Mm. And then you put them in the attic, and then when you bring them down six months later, they're like, holy cow, I remember these. <laughs> so and they play with them like crazy good. for two days. It's, so this is what we it do. Works really well. This is we what this podcast is: is we're parenting. taking yeah. these old things, we're dusting them off, uh-huh, we're bringing them back to you, and you're going, this holy so cool. crap, I wish I had known this my whole life. Oh, I was hoping we had just turned into a parenting podcast because of Thomas's new kid. Yeah, classical mm. parenting tips. Yeah, this will go really well. Um, and I'm a bachelor, so I got yeah. I got a ton of them. I have three weeks of experience, so yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, this is going to be great. Yeah, also so, the So, gentlemen, I kind of feel like the way that this podcast is organized is kind of like the court of a king. Okay, good. Um, Thomas is clearly the sovereign. He is oh, clearly wow. the king. He is this, he, uh, Lord Thomas. Yeah. Um, or the advisor. He could be an advisor. No, no, he's the king. He's the oh, king. Wow. And then, and then uh, well, he just I'm, had an error. It makes sense. I'm the advisor. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm the one that wow. kind of like comes alongside and you may, <laughs> you may even say there's like a, a bit of the power behind the throne. I mean, oh, I don't, wow. I don't want to okay, say it, boy. but you know, okay. we're all thinking it. Um, and then, but every good court, and I say this with all due praise, Every good court needs a fool. Oh, go soak your head, Every Oh, oh, you all. Just what a fool would say. Um, No, I'm praising you with this. Uh, I'm praising the fool. Your folly is praiseworthy. Good. So... Yeah, see? <laughs> my shorts. Great. See there? Yeah, uh, I, I can't remember what this book is about. I don't think but it's you remember about what the I, setup of it. I don't yeah. remember what it is. You're pretty I, close. I'm no, yeah. good. And, and honestly, that hit kind of close to home. I'll talk about why. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Not, not in a bad way. And all right. So, listener, I'm going to begin this with a story. No. Good. Wait, what? what's wrong with the story? Isn't yeah. the story good? It's a good story. Graham seems upset. So, in college, I was in a poetry class. It was a great poetry class. I like where the story starts. And I, I do enjoy writing poetry. And I know that there's, you know, for, for reals, I have, I have a little portfolio. Mm-hmm. And you guys don't believe me. You've talked about it. I, so I have, I have a deep love. Love of poetry in Hindenburg. Have, have not really been synonymous on this podcast. I have, I have a deep love of good poetry. Uh-huh. I have <laughs> a seething <laughs> hatred of bad poetry. And because of the amount of bad poetry, I have a suspicion for... And because of how poets tend to think of themselves, I have a suspicion for the genre in general, right? I feel like it is overpraised for what it actually delivers. In any case, I was in a poetry class, one that I really enjoyed. It changed the way that I wrote for the better, certainly. I look at my poetry before, and it was way worse, and I look at my poetry after, and it's far better, at least in my opinion, just like any poet would think of himself. Good, of course. And at the end of the semester, we all were to bring our best poems that we had written, you know, from any time period, and then poems that we had found and, that, and thought were praiseworthy and wonderful. And we we're going to have a, a sort of a reading together. 
And I brought a couple of poems, and I brought some found poems, and then I brought a couple of poems out of a book called The Devil's Book of Verse. Hmm. And The Devil's Book of Verse is famous poets, and they're cantankerous, disgruntled, angry, hateful, sour, nasty poetry, all the worst stuff from everybody. Wonderful. Right? It's It's a fantastic little book. Yeah. And I read a couple, and I tried to balance them. There are some about hating men, and there are some about hating women. You know, after a poet gets dumped, what is he to do? Of course. Except to write horrible poetry about the opposite sex. And I, here's one by an unknown poet, and it is decidedly misogynistic. Is this one that you read? In the this is one that time? I read. There were a few that I read, and I, I tried to read from both sides, right? Men against women and women against men, just because I didn't want to seem unbalanced. But here's one called Faults, Male and Female. <laughs> men, they have many faults, but women, only two. Everything they say and everything they do. Oh, gosh. And that's the end of the poem. Good. And I have, I have a couple others, and I will, I will spare you, dear listener, of my other poems, but they're great. It's, it's really fun. And I read these, and the rest of my class- Yeah, they're mortified, right? Was absolutely mortified. Yeah, absolutely. And terrified that it happened. Yeah. Why, why do you think so? Because they had, they had a design where they thought to be a highbrow yeah, really and serious, serious yeah. evening- of intellectual discourse, and you um, um, brought uh, a levity and a humor, and kind of a one would even say a reverency or foolishness, or foolishness ah, yes, to right. the situation. Mm-hmm. Little folly. My question is: Was I wrong? Was no. I wrong to do what I did? Nah. Why not? Well, were they were they like full of themselves? Were they a little yes. pompous in their poetry night? Oh, absolutely. Of course they were. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, then yes. Then I, yeah. Then it's, um... Then po- poets gathered sh- together to read to each other. Sure. It is always okay, a pompous fine. occasion. Then it's Good. a little, there's a little bit of a humanizing aspect to the, to bringing in, in, to sort of pointing out how, how kind of silly we are. Yeah. Not that we do this on the podcast. Everything is, I mean, we are... Very serious. We are dead serious yeah, every time. Every time. Yeah. I, which is why every time I read comments where it says, listen to this podcast, it is so funny, and I'm just like insulted because uh, yeah. this is this is it. serious yeah. academics it is yeah so. everything we should we say is just dripping honey of intelligence yeah. and, so i mean and solemn wisdom yeah. yeah but i guess we can't control the tastes of others <laughs> so the book i'm i'm talking about today is called the praise of folly and it's by a fellow named desiderius erasmus and i certainly mis- mispronounced his name it can't that can't be right <laughs> but he lived in the late 14 early 1500s and right about the time of the, the Reformation, he was a contemporary of Luther. He thought Lu- some of Luther's ideas were great. He disagreed Lex? that... Huh? Lex Luthor? Lex Luthor. Huge fan of the Superman series. Yeah, hated yeah. Superman. Yeah, oh, my goodness. Um, that, that's the Reformation. Yeah. <laughs> Reformation was Where? getting rid of the old... No <laughs> friggin' aliens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a parallel. Yeah. No, there's got to be. Universe. Superman yeah. is like the Catholic Church. And oh, oh, oh my gosh. goodness. Okay, All right. Cool. Well, to, next time we'll on Classical Stuff. Episode, next time yeah. on Classical <laughs> Stuff, we talk Superman. Good. Anyway, he, he thought that Luther's idea that everything was predestined was kind of silly and he was all for free will and he thought that the church needed to be reformed from the inside rather than separated from, he said, yes, you've gotten rid of all these traditions, but... Maybe we don't say the prayers by rote anymore, but we're not praying either once we're Protestants, right? Mm-hmm. I see Protestants and not a lot of them are praying. So, you know, you've sort of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. So we had all these ideas and he wrote some stuff. This particular book is written as a, a speech from Folly herself, the goddess Folly, and it is praising herself, why we should all think she is great. 
That is her whole premise. <laughs> she gets up and she's like, hey, boys, I'm going to give you a talk about why I'm great. And let me explain what I'm here to do. Sounds great. And uh, I'm going to tell you why my clothing is fine. And so she gives her pedigree and sort of talks about what gods hang out with her and why they're pretty cool. And here, let me see if I can, I can give you a, let's see. I have it. I have it here. I have a whole bunch of quotes, so I might have to flip around a little bit. So please be, um, be patient with me, no. dear audience. Um, okay. Maybe I, maybe I didn't write those down, but she has her pedigree and everyone she's born with. So she is like raised by drunkenness and foolishness. And she has as friends like laziness and self-love and flattery and all of these gods that like to hang out with her. And then she, her point is to prove to to us that we should praise her, Mm -hmm. right? That she is deserving of the same praise that we give all the other gods and goddesses. Is she the offspring of Plutus? Is it Plutus and freshness? Does that sound? Yeah. Plutus and freshness and Plutus is the God of wealth. Mm -hmm. And so that, makes a lot of a lot of sense. And so I I haven't like you can you can go through and there is a structure to this and the structure is generally a rhetorical one. There's an exordium, there's a narratio, there's a partitio, and for those who aren't steeped in the rhetorical pro- process, you can go back and listen to a podcast we had previously about, you know, putting together a rhetorical argument, but basically it's all organized. It's like, it's like a big organized essay about why she's great. And there isn't really a thread of narrative. It's just, she touches on a whole bunch of little things. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to touch on a few of those is as it, we move through the book today. Is it actually funny? Like, did you Yeah, like there's it? some okay. funny stuff it, in here. Funny, and the though. writing is pretty, pretty silly. And the reason, the reason that I think that this is a, a big question and why your sort of jabs hit a little close to home is because I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, this is, this is sort of a big personal question for me. What place has folly in, hmm. in the Christian life, in the academic life and in the life of a wise man, where should folly fall in? Should all folly be thrown out completely? Is there any place for a man to be a little silly? Is there any place for silliness in the human life? Hmm. Right. There are verses in the Bible, right? There should be no silly talk or coarse jesting. How far does that stretch? Should the Christian ever be silly? Yeah. What what marks a grown man, right? Mm-hmm. Where does where does a man become dignified? Is there dower, any, dower seriousness. Yeah. Is is there any place in <laughs> dignity for a little a little foolishness, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is a great question, partially because I I definitely fall on one side of this coin. I think that you're not that dower. Foolishness. <laughs> 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 Thank you. I think that foolishness definitely has a place in in the Christian life, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Is how far is too far and where does it land and what does it bring to the human life? And so I'm going to, I'm going to sort of drop you guys a couple of topics and then ask you what, what place, if any, does folly have in these topics? Oh, maybe style. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to jump in with a fun little quote that it's not really a question. This isn't a topic we have to stick on, but it's, it's just kind of a jab at, at scholars. (laughs) Good. And so she's talking and she's dropping in some Greek words, she makes a sort of a pun on the word philosopher. She calls it philosophy. <laughs> Good. And she says, it is... <laughs> oh, no. Oh, six burn. Yeah. 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 She Got says, him. it has seemed well, you note, to imitate the rhetoricians of our time who believe themselves absolutely to be gods if they can show themselves bilingual, like a horse leech, and account it a famous... Fe- I don't know what a horse leech is. Uh, <laughs> listeners, if it you do, do, let us know. Two lang. I don't know. <laughs> 
So an accountant, a famous feat if they can weave a few Greekish words like inlay work ever and mm. anon into their Latin orations, <laughs> so good. even if at the moment there is no place for them. Mm. Then if they want exotic touches, they dig four or five obsolete words out of decaying manuscripts by which they spread darkness over the reader with the idea, I warrant you, that those who understand will be vastly pleased with themselves mm. and those who do not understand will admire the more and all the more the less they understand. The fact is that there is a rather elegant species of enjoyment among our sect to fall into special love with that which is specially imported. Some who are a little more ambitious laugh and applaud and, by example of the ass, shake their ears so that in the eyes of the rest they will seem to comprehend. Quite so. Quite so. <laughs> now I go back to my outline. So it's a little That's aside. Good. She's like, I'm using foreign words, but... So do rhetoricians when they want to seem impressive and anyone who understands is like, oh, indeed, yes, I understand Greek. And then all those who don't are like, oh, they're flipping genius. Yeah, I think Folly's spot on with that one. Yep. I don't think she's wrong. Yeah. And then, I feel personally attacked. No, I was kidding. <laughs> okay. So here I found. <laughs> I do feel somewhat personally attacked because my next episode is going to be four or five obsolete words, whatever the phrase she just used. So <laughs> that is literally my next episode. So. And I heard a little bit. Any of you who have written books and tossed a little bit of Latin, a little bit of Greek in there. All right. So. I, I'm going to skip over her pedigree and her friends, and we are going to talk about marriage. What place do you think Folly has in marriage? Is uh, it necessary for marriage? Yeah. I mean, there's a certain lightheartedness. Like, uh, I don't know. If fo- yeah, I'm just having trouble with the word Folly, I guess. So a lightness. There's a levity that you should bring. Um, yeah, like a marriage that's just dour and serious all the time sounds very boring. Or like... Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, mm. like just the power couple, the yeah. power hungry couple. Yeah. And then there's not really a point to the marriage mm-hmm. other than power. Mm-hmm. And you don't, yeah, the marriage itself is like a secondary good. And then that makes it less pleasant. Mm-hmm. Does it help love to grow or does it help? Does it, does it if you're in help. it for marriage or if you're in it for power Did this, no, no 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 does folly help the the relationship like is, is there a healthiness to it does it do anything healthy in, in in that in the marriage relationship i kind of feel like yes um because it's because it, it's a disarming thing right like folly kind of um either disarms yourself if you're self-deferent if you're self-depreciating but it's also um I mean, we kind of talked about this with our sarcasm podcast and our, our satire podcast, Folly kind of is playing that same instrument or is doing a, a similar kind of thing. I don't know. But that's in, so then I'm thinking that there's a possibility of excess of Folly also. Sure, so sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Marriage is a place for serious conversation for, yes, but, uh, but there, yeah, it should be balanced in some way. So I guess both are necessary. All right. So this comes right after a discussion of the, the act of conceiving a child and how absolutely ridiculous that is and how if anyone wishes to become a father, he'll have to engage in some sort of folly and silliness. But right afterwards, it says, now tell me what man by heaven could wish to stick his head into the halter of marriage if, as your (laughs) wiseacres have the the habit of doing, he first weighed with himself the inconveniences of wedded life. Or what woman would ever admit her husband to her person if she had heard or thought about the dangerous pains of childbirth and the irksomeness of bringing up a child? But since you owe your existence to the marriage bed, and marriage is owing to Anoya, a servant of mine, you can see how vastly indebted you are to me. Then too, would a woman who has gone through all this wish to make a second venture if the power and influence of my leth did not attend her? 
And in spite of what Lucretius claims, Venus herself would not deny that without the addition of my presence, her strength would be enfeebled and ineffectual. So it is that from this brisk and silly little game of mine come forth the haughty philosophers, to whose places those are vulgarly called monks have now succeeded, and kings in their scarlet, pious priests, and triply most holy popes. (laughs) Also, finally, that assembly of the gods of poets, so numerous that Olympus, spacious as it is, can hardly accommodate the crowd. Basically... Everybody comes from marriage. Yep. And marriage comes from folly. Mm-hmm. Because who in the world would want to get married if they didn't blank their minds a little bit as to the pains of marriage, the pains of childbirth, and the pains of childbirth. And the silliness of some of, some of that. And the silliness of all of that. Yeah. Okay, so thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yes, it's cute. Yes. It's, I guess, I mean, I did not, so we're raising a child now, and so I guess there's some, we've been very blessed to have many uh parents to sign up to bring us meals to bring us like dinner during these first few weeks of having a child and so uh you know moms will come over and they bring food and every one of them says something to the effect of like you will forget how painful that experience was like all you will remember is how much you love that child um and like all you'll remember is like that moment with the child and that's what when he when um i guess when folly is referencing annoya she's referencing forgetfulness right like there's an, you have to be able to forget the pain, the the hard stuff to be able to enjoy any of it, especially to have a second child. Sure. You got exactly. to forget that's all saying. the potty yeah. training. Mm-hmm. You got to fit, yeah. forget all the diapers, the sl- the all the nights, sleepless the, nights, yeah, all, all the everything. <clears throat> so I get, yeah. So, so foolishness and folly, I can interchange those like, yeah. Okay. So I guess there's a foolishness in it. I don't like falling in love is just a foolish thing. Like I, just, I remember one pastor saying that he would always ask the grooms if they're ready or if they're scared before, getting married. And he said, 90% of them say, nah, man, I'm totally pumped. This is great. And he was standing there thinking like, they have no, are idea. you insane? Right. Like yep. you should be terrified. Right. This is one of the greatest commitments you're ever making. And if you are jumping into this thinking, oh yeah, it's going to be great. Like, because that's their fool. That's their folly talking. It's right their there. folly talking, yeah. right? <laughs> they are, they are not thinking yeah. because you need that. Like you need that folly. You it's do. The, um, I don't know why I'm jumping from marriage to starting businesses, but it's the same. Like when you start a business, if you were to look at the rate of businesses that fail, like, you know, whatever. Oh man, you're jumping ahead. Oh, am I sorry? Oh no, that's totally okay. But it's go, like, go, I was going to say Thomas may be romantic. Oh, thanks. It's like, it's like starting a business. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> thanks. 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 Good. Uh, but like if, if someone were to just look at the numbers and say like, will my business make it? By by numbers, you should say no. There's like no chance of me making it. But still, businesses are started every year. And in the same, I don't. I apologize for this. But in the same with marriage, that if you were to look at the numbers, you would say I probably shouldn't get married because this is very likely to like not go very well. But you need that optimism. You need that excitement on the front end, or else it wouldn't be a fifty percent divorce rate. It'd be a. It would be a zero percent marriage rate. Yeah, that that's it. nobody exactly get married. That. No one would get married. So and so. You, you need a foolishness to ignore those things. Mm-hmm. So Folly makes the claim that because yep. marriage and life owe their origin to her, right? Yep. No one would get married. No one would have kids unless there was some folly involved. Right. Mm-hmm. We should rightly praise her as the origin of all life. Yeah. That's fair. Cute. <laughs> okay. You get, it's I such know. a derogatory it's so cute. I know. No, it's just, it's just like, it's such a charming little ar- uh, argument. It's so nice. Okay. So this <laughs> is one on the makeup of the soul. We've talked about the tripartite soul here tripartite, Mm -hmm. not tripartide. We made that mistake when we first talked about it. (laughs) The tripartite soul. And here's a little bit on the makeup of the soul. For since by the Stoic definitions, wisdom is no other than to be governed by reason, while folly is to be moved at the whim of the passions, Jupiter to the end 
to that end, obviously, that the life of mankind should not be sad and harsh, put in how much more of passions than of reason. Well, the proportions run about one pound to half an ounce. Besides, he imprisoned reason in a cramped corner of the head and turned over all the rest of the body to the emotions. After that, he instated two most violent tyrants, as it were, in opposition to reason. Anger, which holds the citadel of the breast, and consequently the very spring of life, the heart, and lust, which rules a broad empire lower down, even to the privy parts. How much reason is good so scandalous. for... scandalous. Wow. How much reason is good for against these twin forces the ordinary life of men sufficiently reveals when reason, and it is all she can do, shouts out her prohibitions until she is hoarse and dictates formulas of virtue. But the passions simply bid their so-called king to go hang himself and more brazenly roar down the opposition until the man, tired out as well, willingly yields and knuckles under. What do you think? So basically, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna summarize, basically the Stoics say that wisdom is to be governed by reason and folly is to be moved by the passions. Now Jupiter knew that man mankind would be sad and harsh if he was all all the while ruled by reason. Mm-hmm. So he jammed reason into one tiny corner of your head and then mm-hmm. made two huge forces to make sure he stays there. And that's anger, which rules the chest, and lust, which rules pretty much everything else. Mm-hmm. And your reason can shout and shout and shout and encourage you to virtue. But those two things are like, well, you can shut your face. We're going to go do what we want to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes the life of man bearable. I don't know about bearable because like, there is a desire that reason would rule more of us than uh, than lust. Yeah, this, this is flipping Plato on his head. Yes. This is saying that, like, Plato says the health of the soul is the ordered soul where reason is ordering the appetites and the will. And she's saying, like, the king sucks, uh, you know, the, the, the rules are boring, we gotta have a little, we gotta have a little fun, we gotta let loose a little bit, and the willpower and the appetites um, make life a little more enjoyable. That, that's sort of what... So life would be boring. Life, life would, would be, be boring living. if we had healthy souls. Yeah. Right, we can teach ourselves that reason should rule, but sheesh, what a drag. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the, uh, and that's kind of the but argument. That's not tor- I, I don't know if I, dis- like, she might be right. So is this anti-classical, this book? Oh, wow, there you go. I, I would say, in a lot of ways, yes. Yeah. She is yeah. trying to turn a lot of philosophy on its head and a lot of what, what's what's terrifying about this, and this is the question that we'll, we'll like, you can think about this as we move on because I want to address it at the end, but we encourage our students to a certain kind of end. Are we doing them damage by encouraging them only to that end without bringing in at least a little bit of folly or, or pointing out where those things fail? I don't know if we... Oh, where they fail. I don't, so, I mean, I work in student life. I don't know if student life would fall in the folly category, but we do care about students having fun. It's not the purpose of the school. It's not the reason we show up to work every day. It's but the single biggest thing they pray for. Yeah, <laughs> sure, naturally. No, it's true. Whenever you have a student and we say, all right, guys, we need to someone to pray uh, for what we're about to do. It's like, you know, dear Lord, I just pray we have a good time. I just pray that we have a good time and everyone has fun today. It's like, yeah. well, I don't know. But we do have a place for, um, uh, we we have intramurals as a part of the school. I I just finished up um, the Eric Metaxas biography on Bonhoeffer, and there's this part where Bonhoeffer like starts a monastery, and still like you know monasteries. Erasmus is saying that monks are like really boring people. He still had every day ended with some form of game, some form of competition. So even even in a monastery where things are supposed to be like the most severe, there's space for 
foolishness for fun for monastic game night monastic game night that isn't that great so every night these like you know 12 guys who live together would do something like well that's like there's so many bible verses they can remember there's this really great movie called integrate silence and it's uh it's completely silent the movie doesn't have any any talking and it is um uh, a filmmaker was allowed to film um the the cartusians in chartreuse Um, so these are some of the, uh, these are monks that take in vows of silence and they live in, in, in quiet, but so you, you watch this movie, it's very beautiful and the monk's life are very ordered and it's, uh, it's prayer and it's meditation and it's reading and it's gardening. But at the end of the movie, the last thing is that there was a heavy snowfall and all of the monks go sledding in their big white robes mm-hmm. and they're kicking and laughing like children as they go down the hill, laughing and sledding. And there's just, um, uh, you know, so it's, it's kind of. I don't know if that's folly or if that's rightly ordered affections. Right. I, it feels like Erasmus um, is conflating. No, because I feel like you need to read. You need to read. If you read Erasmus and and stick it to your stick it to your well ordered soul, you kind of have to do that every once in a while. But but don't actually believe that the, you should have that revolution. Yeah, where the where the appetites take over the. Does that make sense? But, but, yes, but so. Give me the three. So it's reason and lust. And what's the third one? I'm forgetting. Anger. 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 Okay. So an, uh, a classical image is that uh, there's a chariot and the chariot is, so the person who is like on the chariot itself is reason, but reason is pulled by those two, anger and lust. It's like, the, so reason is in control, but what is pulling reason is, are those emotional forces. So I'm agreeing with folly in the sense of if someone were to only live a reasoned life and only live an intellectual life, that is an insufficient life. Like there should be, and lust is not the right word for it, but most people who are not like called to a life of singleness should have some form of attraction. You know what I mean? Like they should be. Well, lust is just, I mean, it's a, it's a dirtier word for appetites. It's it, the people should have appetites is what I'm saying. I'm yeah. And in the same way, um, anger might not be the right word, but people should get worked up about stuff. passion, passion. So people should have passion and they should have attraction and that's, an, those should be controlled by reason, but you should still have them. Is that that's how I'm trying and I think to what folly is trying to say is that we, the sages overweight wisdom reason. and reason yep. to the detriment of these other two when yes. in fact these other two are doing the i mean like in, in your more, picture the, yep. the majority of the work right yes. they're they're pulling the freaking chariot exactly yeah i agree yeah. with that okay next topic is friendship. Thought. do you agree well, no oh, it's sorry. just it's just um um it is i think it's it, it, it's a counterbalance that you need to read but if the under uh, but if 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 you take it as sort of marching order to the soul's revolution. So like if if you agree that the well-ordered soul is where reason orders the will and orders the appetites, and that is where human flourishing and happiness comes from, and you really do believe that, and that really is something that, you know, let's say, let's say you have the well-ordered soul, and that does make you happy and content in life. And then you read Praise of Folly, you can kind of chuckle because he's saying things that are, you know, that are funny and true. And like, you know, uh, yeah, it is kind of foolish to, to, to get married. And these are, this is kind of the way that, that world kind of, the world kind of works. But if you read this book and you say, oh my goodness... All of this stuff of the well-ordered soul where reason, it, oh my, yeah, that is stuffy and boring. Like, um, we do need to, we do need to throw off the dusty old rags of the past and, and move into this, into this world of where, 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 um, 
uh, kind of like what we talked about with uh, William Blake, mm-hmm. right? Like where, uh, you know, mankind's happiness is by, is by seeking after that, which makes them feel alive. And what makes you feel more alive than engaging in these, in these appetites and whatnot. So, um, it's, it's one of these, yeah, it's kind of like, um, um, the good man reads this and is delighted. Um, the depraved man reads this and, and, and sees it as something that gives him license. <laughs> That, that's sort that's of good. My, yeah. my, yeah. Okay, fair enough. All right, next topic. Friendship. Where does folly come into play in friendship? And nowhere. Nowhere, yeah. It's all, a, all serious all, all the time. All monks all the time, mm-hmm. yeah. We just help each other in our reading and our thoughts. and. So you say sarcastically, but where yeah. does that actually come in? No. Any thoughts? Where Where is folly absolutely necessary to the survival of friendship? it's more fun to be around people that are funny. I don't yeah. know. It's more fun to be around people that are a little foolish. Uh, uh, or it also points out your foibles or, or, or points out your faults that can be used to like help with the improvement and sanctification. Oh, that's interesting. So you think folly is necessary because they, they, point, they are willing to point out your faults. But they're also willing to put up with them. You have to overlook them. You have yeah. to be forgetful of those faults. Yes. I'm trying to think of like an example. Oh man, how'd you guys get here? So so, so pause. Okay. You kind of nailed it. Good yeah. job, fellas. Really? So Thanks. listen to this. This is a little bit of is a longer a passage. It's just I'm a great friend. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So this comes right after a section on drinking and mm. how drinking oh, okay. parties would be an absolute drag if everyone was just sitting there being a wise man. It's true. You need someone that's a bit of a goof, a bit of a, you know, mm-hmm. you need a, a weird guy to do some silliness and play dice and have some fun if you're, if you're ever going to have a little bit of fun in life. This comes right after. Yet there are others, perhaps, who do not care for this department of pleasure either. That would be drinking games and drinking parties. But find satisfaction in the love and familiar society of friends. Letting it be known that friendship uniquely deserves to be preferred above all else, as being so necessary a thing that not air, fire, or water is more so. And so delightful that he who would take it from the world would take the sun from the sky. And lastly, so honorable, as if honor had something to do with the subject, but the philosophers themselves have not hesitated to name it among the greatest goods. And that's true. Philosophers in general would put, sometimes put friend, friendly relationships e- over even marriage relationships. Mm-hmm. Yep. But what if I demonstrate that I am both the stem and the stern of this admired good also? And I shall not demonstrate it by ambiguous syllogisms, sorites, horn dilemmas, or any other sophisticated subtleties of that sort. But by crude common sense, as the phrase is, I shall point it out as plainly as if with my finger. Go to, conniving at your friend's vices, passing them over, being blind to them and deceived by them, even loving and admiring your friend's egregious faults as if they were virtues. Does this not seem pretty close to folly? Think a moment of the fellow who kisses the mole on his mistress's neck. Or of the other who is delighted by the growth on his little lady's nose. Or of the father who says of his cross-eyed son that his eyes twinkle. What is all this, I ask you, but sheer folly? I, you all vote, triple and quadruple foolishness. Yet this same foolishness both joins friends and after joining them keeps their friendship alive. I'm talking about mortal men, of whom none is born without faults. That one is best who is afflicted with the fewest of them. And then a little later, since then the nature of man is such that no one can discover or that one can discover no constitution which is not liable to great faults, and add to this all the great diversity of ages and of education, all the slips, all the mistakes, all the accidents of mortal life, how can the pleasure of friendship, subs- friendship subsist for an hour between those Arguses? Argus was a Greek fellow who had eyes all over his body. 
unless it is attended by that which the Greeks so aptly call Greek words, which you may translate either as folly or as easygoing ways. Basically, if you got a wise man, he can see all the faults in his friends. How can friendship survive unless there's a little bit of folly looking over all those faults? And I say this partially because you guys are familiar with mine. I have practiced them upon you for certain. How could we yet be friends unless you looked over some of my faults that I know are clearly there and could name to you? Maybe there's a golden mean to folly. Like, if because if we were completely, yeah. if we were like, AJ, as your friend, all I care about is your betterment as a man. Every time you do something fool, uh, silly or whatever, or your faults, I point them out, I sit them down, and we have like a big old heart to heart. Eventually, mm-hmm. you're going to be like, oh, Donaldson's like <laughs> stick in the mud. Right. Um, but if I was, but but then, then then there's, there's, so that's a, that's too much. Whoa, something just exploded near the school, maybe, or something? Yeah, that was happened? fun. Something fell on the ground? Sounds bad. Um, folly. Um, <laughs> folly, indeed. But, um, so yeah, on the one hand, like, so if, uh, uh, yeah, too much folly, or too much seriousness, but if you but if you are completely a fool, completely an idiot, well, then I'm trying to think, you're kind of like, you know, a Dost- one of the Dostoevsky characters, or those sort of... Um, uh, or the uh, like uh, marmalade off in uh, in crime and punishment, or um, um, you are, are sort of you're completely hopeless and everyone uh, I, I don't know I, I feel like it was like a golden mean where you need to have a little bit of an easygoing nature, um, um, so that you give your friends a pass, but you're not so uncaring or you're not so like easygoing that. You completely let everything slide. Sure. So, but when Aristotle is talking about what makes for a good friendship, he'll only talk about virtue. He'll only talk about like the individual excellence of the members of that friendship. He won't talk about having to overlook stuff. He and Folly says there's no one that has that sole virtue. Right. Right. No one is that good. Yeah. So you to have a maintain have and maintain a friendship, you need to overlook faults. And I would. I would, I'm willing to bet that in marriage, the same is necessary. It, it sounds like the forgetfulness that Folly was talking about earlier. So I, that makes sense. That there are things that you have to overlook, but Graham is right that it can't be everything. You can't be overlooking all, you know, every word that's said and the way they say it and how they act, because then why would you be friends with that person? Because mm-hmm. so. they're hilarious. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. No, that is right. But then are you their friend or are you just using them for your own amusement? But do you actually care about their good, but or would, do you just use them as as because they're like like you know wacky Dan type, is gonna why, is gonna like launch of himself off a yeah. off a bridge again? Why with, do you with a golf cart? Why do you care about their their improvement or their well being? Why, why do you care about this for person unless there was first some sort of personal enjoyment or amusement from hanging out with them? Sure, right. but if, if that's all there is, if there's no love there where you seek right. the good of the person, then 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 all the person to you is 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 an ape or you know somebody who's just uh, there to amuse you. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I actually read a really great article. Oh man, I, I I think it may have even been in Vice, which I don't normally read. Um, and you prefer um, to read virtue. Yeah, exactly. Um, but they were talking about sort of the endemic of late twenties to early thirty year old men who don't really have friends. They got a lot of bros. They got a lot of bros that they used to do drinking with and they and a lot of college buddies that they would do crazy wacky things with back in the day. But then one of the bros gets c- cancer or something. You know, then one of the bros loses his dad yeah. and oh, and his bros don't know how to deal with it right. Right. because they can't be serious. Everything was just, you know, like, you know, you know, everything was 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 bro. 
Um, and so, the, and and um, and then eventually, as as you sort of age and you can't be a bro every day, um, then there's all of a sudden there there's there's sort of this friendless um, gap. And so he was interviewing all these people. So you know, he's talking to 19 year olds, and they're saying like, "I got my bros, and they're with me for life, and we have we've done some crazy hilarious stuff, and I love those boys." And then. He was going down and talking to the 30-year-olds, and it's like, yeah, those guys back in the day was great, but like I haven't seen them since a long time, and I'm getting really involved in work. And then, and then they had no, you know, there was there was no real friendship. Yeah. So, um, yes, folly is needed for friendship, but it, that can't be everything, or else, or else, then there's then it, it'll burn itself out. Yeah. So the fun question. And the one that comes came to mind as I was reading this, and this relates, and, and I'm just going to pose it and then we got to move on. But when we teach and talk about friendship in class, are we doing our kids a disservice to not talk about any of the folly that's needed? Uh, I, to only speak of virtue. I think the folly might come naturally. Like, the, I don't need to be educated on the foolish parts of it. I need to be educated. You know what I mean? Like uh, <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Because... Is, is that what Erasmus says? Well, folly will later claim that all men are born into folly. It's the natural yeah. state of life. Yeah. We'll get there. Okay. So, I, I would say that there is probably some personality aspect. I, there are lots of people who are sticks in the mud. I'm probably one of them. And so, then, what I, I would need to learn more about folly. But there are some people who, like, folly is their... Mo, and they probably need to learn about seriousness. I'm right here. I mean, parents do this. Parents do this, right? When they say things like, "Oh, why don't you be better friends with so and so?" and like, "So and so is weird and boring," and like, I don't know, because I don't want to spend time with them. You know, you know, plays the viola. You know, it's just (laughs) you're just this kid, and you're just like, "Oh man, there's nothing fun about them." People who play the viola are the worst, Uh, right? I don't mean that, but you know what I mean. It's it's just, but your parents are trying to say, like, "I want my child to have good influences of this." perceivably virtuous child yeah. and the kid's like oh that kid why'd i have to go to his birthday party <laughs> <laughs> okay the next part is about philosophers and there's a long section on philosophers and how completely useless they are great so i'm going to give you a little taste from a different a couple different spots <laughs> just in the be book. clear erasmus is doing a work of philosophy anyway great. yeah okay, there great. there is definitely some tongue-in-cheek here great. he's got his tongue firm firmly planted there yeah. but i'll give you a little taste then we can talk about philosophers How ineffective these philosophers are for the work of real life, the one and only Socrates himself, who was judged wisest by, not the wisest, Oracle of Apollo, will serve for proof. When he tried to urge something, I know not what, in public, he hastily withdrew to the accompaniment of loud laughter from all quarters. Yet Socrates was not altogether foolish in this one respect, that he repudiated the epithet wise and gave it over to God. He also cherished the opinion that a wise man should abstain from meddling in the public business of the commonwealth. To be sure, he ought rather to have admonished us that one who wishes to have a place in the ranks of men should abstain from wisdom itself. And she goes on to show that if you need someone good for wartime, well, don't ask a philosopher, they tend to run away. If you need someone that's good for business, well, don't ask a philosopher, he'll always be stuck haggling back and forth about whether or not something is a good idea. If you need a philosopher for fun at a party, well, that's that's a no-go. If you need a philosopher, they just are pretty much useless. And here's a little piece from later about the happiness of wise men. Let me return to the topic of the happiness of fools. After a life lived out in much jollity, with no fear of death, or sense of it, they go straight to the Elysian fields, there to entertain the pious and idle shades with their jests. Let us go about then and compare the lot of the wise man with that of the fool. Fancy some pattern of wisdom to put up against him, a man who wore out his whole boyhood and youth in pursuing the learned disciplines. 
He wasted the pleasantest time of life in unintermitted watchings, cares, studies. And through the remaining part of it, he never tasted so much as a tittle of pleasure. Always frugal, impecunious, sad, austere, unfair and strict towards himself, morose and unamiable to others, afflicted by pallor, leanness, invalidism, sore eyes, premature age, and white hair, dying before his appointed day. By the way, what difference does it make when a man of that sort dies? He's never lived. There you have a clear picture of the wise man. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking maybe the Socratic irony, or yeah, the Socratic character is, is a great example of of the fool, of the fo- the helpful fool or the foolishness that they're talking about. Socrates is is pointing out the the fool, you know, pointing out the the sophistry and those around him, never claiming to be wise, is um, foolishness is wise, but is 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 coming across like there's I think there's a good there's a good folly in Socrates mm-hmm. okay. that there isn't in. Heidegger, you know, or something. A couple extra quotes to kind of, kind of bolster this picture of the wise man. So this one is about prudence and how the fools are more prudent than the wise. The wise man runs to books of the ancients and learns from them a merely verbal shrewdness. The fool arrives at true prudence, if I'm not deceived, by addressing himself at once to the business and taking his chances. Homer seems to have seen this for all that he was blind when he said, even a fool is wise wise after a thing is done. There are two great obstacles to developing a knowledge of affairs. Shame, which throws a smoke over the understanding, and fear, which once danger has been sighted, dissuades from going through with an exploit. Folly, with a grand gesture, frees us from both. Never to feel shame, to dare anything. Few mortals know to what further blessings these will carry us. And then a little bit about how the foolish pursue virtue more than the wise. Indeed, We distinguish a wise man from a fool by this, that reason governs governs the one and passion the other, right? Wise are governed by reason, foolish are governed by passion. Thus the Stoics take away from the wise man all perturbations of the soul as so many diseases. Yet these passions not only discharge the office of mentor and guide to such as are pressing toward the gate of wisdom, but they also assist in every exercise of virtue as spurs and goads, persuaders, as it were, to well-doing. All right. Do you have more of a full picture of what, what Folly is getting at here? That the wise man likes to look at old books before j- jumping into something, something. where yeah. the fool is just like, let's go. And if he screws up, he's like, I don't care. Let's keep going. And eventually he'll get the thing done. And on top of that, the fool is going to be pushed towards virtue and wisdom by all of his passion. Mm-hmm. Whereas the wise, if they are only ruled by reason won't be pushed towards anything at all, right? If you, if you pull all the passions out of somebody, they're not going to go anywhere. So even the, the fool is more pushed towards virtue than the wise man. And, and, and this is reminiscent a little bit of Aristotle who says like, you can know what it is to be wise, but yet not be, or know what it is to be virtuous and yet not be virtuous, mm-hmm. right? There's a difference between knowing and doing. Mm-hmm. And the point here that folly is making is that doing needs some folly. I agree with that. Part of what you're getting at is the chance of failure, I guess, and that you'll get more from trying and failing than from studying and studying and not actually trying. I agree with that. Maybe the discomfort or the pushback is that Erasmus is setting up kind of a false dichotomy between an active foolishness and an inactive wisdom, and that there's somewhere in between those where we actually 
where we, the three of us want to be and where we want to point students to also mm-hmm. that there is a way to be both wise and active. But I think I would agree with Erasmus that the tendency is that people who seek wisdom would tend toward inactivity and those who tend toward activity would tend toward like being unstudious. And they're going to live a full life and then eventually have wisdom at the end of it and have lived a full life rather than studying all their life, having wisdom at the end and I just wonder if that's another personality difference of, I think some people are in fact pleased by study and there's nothing like they get what they want in study. So yeah. So when Aristotle has two visions of the good life and one of them is like literally just sitting around and reading philosophy all day. And the other one is politics. He, He proposes both of those as the good life, like separately. Like, I think those are two separate good lives for two different groups of people. And so the same with Erasmus. Hmm. So, well, Erasmus was a scholar. Yeah, like th- sure. there, there's a little bit of tongue in cheek here because he spent his life in scholarship. Yeah, but, but also, I don't know his personal life. Was he like a Chaucer that was out like living a full life? No, no, no. He he was even a monk for a little really? while. Okay. Yeah. So when he makes fun of monks, there's He's a little bit of fun of himself. Yeah. yeah. But there's also so, I mean, we see even in in people that have psychological conditions. So I think there was one where uh, someone for whom they have like too much reason and not enough in, t- in, in, in touch with emotions, their ability to make decisions goes away because everything is weighed back and forth, back and forth. And everything is, um, you want to make the best decision. And eventually at some point you need a little bit of the, of the like, meh, just to like, whatever. And, and then, and then take right. a choice. Right. Um, you know, if you think about like, okay, uh, um, if I go down these steps, should I take like should I should I go two at a time? Should I go like my left foot first, my right foot first? What's the, so it's like the um, uh, the the siren song of optimization, mm. right? If you want right. to optimize every Everything. experience, right. and you use your logic and your reason to really say like, how would this experience be absolutely optimized? And then you don't really get into uh, you don't really just sort of do it and play it and 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 do whatever the thing is. I remember when I was a kid, um, and more complicated. Um, um, more complicated video games came out where you could have branching choices that if you made a choice, it would sort of change the nature of the game. This was a pretty like big thing that happened in in video games, mm-hmm. like basically when I was like in my late teens and early twenties, right? Mm-hmm. Like these these really elaborate stories mm-hmm. where if you do X, then all of a sudden the game is really different. Because in Mario, you were always going to save the princess. Exactly, or die. you like, got to go from left to right yep. and not and you know and not <laughs> fall down. The not hole. get eaten right. by a mushroom. Yeah. yeah. And I remember that kind of, um, I would get this paralysis of wanting to optimize or wanting to do the best or try to figure out the best way to do it to the point where I was like, well, I don't know. I, I, maybe you would, I would read on, you know, this was even. You'd Google good ending. You'd Google good ending or, you, good or ending. you'd try to like, you know, figure out what the, the best thing was. And it would kind of also suck the, the fun out of it because you weren't just sort of like going and doing. You really wanted to make sure you weren't missing anything good right. or you had the optimal experience. Yeah, choice paralysis. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And then and then you're, uh, so I think there's, there's, I remember experiencing that when I was a kid and it actually kind of made me stop playing games. Like I don't really play very many games mm-hmm. at all because of that thing. I just get into them like, oh, this is so big and it's just, ugh. Um, and I feel like that that's probably, uh, another, uh, maybe the attitude should be, I should just be a fool and I should just mm-hmm. like go for it now. Maybe <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't be doing that in video games. Maybe th- th- you should be doing that in life. There's, there's that if, if that, if you are suffering from, from, you know, this analysis, this over analysis, then there, there's a little bit of a, like, just go for it. Mm-hmm. 
um, one of the personally just one that's kind of the one of the things I'm looking forward to with um, me and Thomas and our impending uh, farmerhood mm-hmm. is I don't know how to like plant tr- fruit trees and and like you know cultivate things and at least not in Texas I used to do it in Canada. This but is going to end in like a little shop of horrors, crazy man-eating plant situation. Yeah, or I, but, I'm, but I'm just kind of like <laughs> I'm just going to go for it. I'm yeah. just going to like I mm-hmm. think lavender should go there, and I know it likes the sun and needs good drainage. So like, all right, see if it goes. Right. As opposed to like, where would be the optimal place to plant this plant? Um, you know, that's, that's no way to, that's, yeah, I guess this is what he's saying. It's like, that's no way to exist. Yeah. All right. I got to read one more quote and then I'll have a few closing comments and then you guys can try to convince me not to be so foolish. (laughs) All right. This one's on teaching. It might hit a little close to home. That's my goal. So all my teachers out there listening, get excited. excited. But I should be most foolish myself. It's a, it's a little bit of a longer one and worthy of the manifold laughter of Democritus. If I should go on counting forms of folly and madness among the folk. Let me turn to those who maintain among mortals an appearance of wisdom, and, as the saying is, seek for the golden bough. Among these, the grammarians hold first place. Nothing could be more calamity-stricken, nothing more afflicted, than this generation of men. Nothing so hated of God, if I were not at hand to mitigate the pains of their wretched profession, by a certain sweet infusion of madness. Basically, teachers would have it horrible if there wasn't a little bit of folly involved. For they are not only liable to the five curses, which the Greek Greek epigram calls attention to in Homer, but indeed to 600 curses, as being hunger-starved and dirty in their schools, I said their schools, but it were better said their knowledge factories, or their mills, or even their shambles among herds of boys. There they grow old with their labors, they are deafened by the noise, they sicken by reason of the stench and nastiness. Yet, thanks to me, they see themselves as first among men. So greatly do they please themselves when they terrify the timorous band by a menacing look and tone, right? Teacher look. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows the teacher look. When they beat the little wretches with their ferals, rods, or straps, and when, imitating the ass and Aesop, they storm fiercely in all directions, as whim may dictate. And do you know, all the dirtiness seems sheer elegance. The stench is perfume of sweet marjoram, and the miserable servitude considered to be a kingdom, such a one that they would not trade their tyranny for the empire of Phalaris or Dionysus. But nowadays, they are especially happy in their new illusion of being learned. Of course, they cram their pupils with utter nonsense, but good heavens, what Palamon, what Donatus, do they not scorn in comparison with themselves? I do not know by what sleight of hand they work it so well, but to the foolish mothers and addle-pated fathers of their pupils, they seem to be just what they make themselves out to be. On top of this, they have another pleasure. When one of them can drag out some worm-eaten manuscript, such a fact as the name of Anchises' mother, or some word not generally known, such as bubsequa, bovinator, (laughs) or manticulator, or if one can dig up somewhere a fragment of an ancient tombstone with an inscription badly worn away, O Jupiter, what exulting then, what triumphs, what panegyrics, as if they had conquered Africa or captured Babylon." As for those stilted, insipid verses they display on all occasions, and there are those to admire them, obviously the writer's believes that the soul of Virgil has transmigrated into his own breast. But the funniest sight of all is to see them admiring and praising each other, trading compliment for compliment, thus mutually scratching each other's itch. Yet if one commits a lapse in a single word and another more quick-sighted by happy chance lights on it, O Hercules! What a stir presently, what scufflings, what insults, what invectives. May I have the ill will of the whole grammatical world if I lie. 
I mean, this is not true. I mean, what we're doing is is the most important thing that can be done. And uh, and I'm um, a poet. And I yeah, <laughs> everything yeah. <laughs> everything that that gets said and everything gets learned is is you know just critical for everything. And, and uh, junior hires never smell bad. Oh, I don't yeah, know what true. she's yeah, talking yeah. about. They're you know adorable little walking flowers. Yeah. So I do. I uh, I think the picture of y'all's classroom is different than Volley is painting in here. I think there would be much laughter and enjoyment in your classroom. Like there is a lightheartedness that you all bring mm-hmm. to it. I think that's what AJ in your class probably surprises the students in reading ancient literature is that it's still relevant and interesting and exciting and mm-hmm. like fun. And so you're not there to dive into the, uh, showing them original clay tablets and translating Gilgamesh you know, word by word. Like that's not, you're not there for the pretentiousness that folly is talking about there. I guess, Graham, you do make them read the opening lines of uh, Canterbury Tales in the original language, but that's more as a, like, that literally is for folly's sake. Like, yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. to poke fun at everyone for them not being a smart. That's true. And it's also, it's, it democratizes it because everybody sounds uh, like a little babbling weirdo yeah. around the table. So for any students for whom that is a scary experience having to read out loud, all of their peers can't do it well. So. It starts everybody off on an even yeah. on yeah. an even playing field. Okay, yeah, so, is it exactly so I think you all are trying for a corrective. Is, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. So time time for a little self reflection and then a couple of bold statements, and you guys can yell at me and Great. try to change me and make me into something a little more dignified. Fool. <laughs> Good. I think my particular fondness for folly comes from a couple of places. One is my station growing up. I did not grow <laughs> up a wealthy man. My family was not tuned towards manners. They were, I mean, like we had manners, but I had babysitters that would yell score and give me a high five if I belched at the table, if it was a particularly good belch and be disappointed in me if it was a small belch. Like that is the house I grew up in. We are silly. My dad makes, you know, sometimes jokes that are a little off center and could be offensive, but they're great. He's hilarious. I love my dad. And so I think that's one place it comes from. I think the other place my folly comes from is disappointment with the scholastic world. And what I mean is having read philosophy, having read theologians, having, having studied it, there's a point where you realize that these are incredibly intelligent men and they don't have the answer. They might hit on some pieces of it, and that is worthwhile. But there's a point where further study and really you know, pulling a book apart more isn't going to yield any more results. Right? You can only cut the animal up so many times before there isn't anything more to get out of it. And so at a certain point, you have to just throw your hands up and say, there's a point at which scholasticism gets ridiculous and where it doesn't yield anything good. And that good has to come from somewhere else. And that's why I think myth is important. We've talked about that duality, myth and dialectic, where at a, at a certain point, you can ask questions and ask questions and ask questions until there's nothing left. And you have to say, well, that's good and I can see it's good. And I know it's good and I don't have to ask it questions till it yields its goodness, right? There is a point where scholasticism fails, where studying won't get you anywhere. And, and so I'm willing to say, especially because of the, the wise people that I've met and the wise sages that I've seen, that unless your wisdom yields a little bit of silliness, yields a little bit of mirth or jolliness, it is not true wisdom, if all it leads you to is an austere dignity, you are not being wise, you are being prideful. And I think I'm held up by scriptures, right? Knowledge puffs up, right? The wisdom of man can end in folly. I think that we have seen that, right? Scripture talks about that. Yeah, we'll we'll go way more into this next episode where we talk about the Roman conception of discipline. You're, you're calling out an honor culture, essentially, of like everyone, people aren't supposed to be people. They're supposed to be like inhuman, like paragons of virtue and... Like 
everybody should be Cato. Yes. Like a Cato, yeah. the, isn't he like the man that like never laughed in his life or yeah. anything yeah, like that? something like that. And I, I think... And calling out stoicism. And um, so it, there's some there's some sort of complexity here that probably we'll tease out at some point. But uh, Maybe it also comes a little bit from my experience of reading absurdist philosophy and sure. realizing how absolutely ridiculous man is. Yeah. Like we are giant toothpaste tubes filled with blood. Yeah. Like that's kind of what we are. And we yeah. walk around and we seem to think that of ourselves, what Hamlet says of us, that we are, you know, oh, what is this angelic being? Mm-hmm. And then wow, Hamlet's but like- he also says we're a quintessence of dust. Exactly, which mm-hmm. is the part that nobody ever quotes, right? We always pull out the quote about how great man is, but very rarely do we finish that. Mm-hmm. And that's my mm-hmm. point, is that we are we are also a little bit ridiculous. And I, I perhaps probably err too far in this, and that what I want to do, and part of it is that I want to make people feel at ease, and if I'm being ridiculous, they can feel more comfortable with themselves. But- I like to pull that down a little bit. Yeah. When man thinks too highly of himself, which is what I did at the poetry reading and everyone was so disgusted with me. I thought we think too highly of ourselves in this poetry class. We are, when in fact we were, I was, I think a sophomore. They weren't, some of them were seniors, but they're college kids. Like they're not the most applauded poets in all the land and they should have a little bit more of a healthy view of themselves. There's wisdom into knowing when that should be done when that shouldn't be done. I think maybe the poetry reading that should have been done, but you don't want to do that in front of somebody that, you know, should be honored. If, 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 if the occasion calls, well, yes, a funeral is not the time for or, that. or if, if sure. someone is being, if or someone is being held poet. up yeah. as saying like, here's somebody that like, you know, sacrificed himself for, for something like, you know, if you're talking about like the, the, um, the tomb of the unknown soldier and then, yes. and then you're like, um, well, at least I'm going to die famous or, you know, like, you know, something like that. Right. Like but that's, 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 uh, that's not folly. That's, but that's the thing. That's not the appropriate time for folly. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, I held folly up as a, as a, a way to reduce a false dignity, right? A college poetry student does not have the, the dignity that I think he feels like he has. Mm-hmm. Right. But a man who has given his, his life for the protection of the many, that is a man that needs to be lauded. It's like a very potent medicine that would kill you folly and 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 this kind of this kind of um satir- satirical ability is like a very potent medicine you you some situations call for it drastically but the day-to-day requirements of health you're pretty rarely going to use it like like if you think of an apothecary shop uh, the good apothecary sort of knows when to use the really potent stuff but for most of life pro- most of everyday's life's problems you don't need the potent stuff I feel like folly kind of falls into, into that well, kind of Well, I think category. I think it depends on the strength of the folly you're using, right? There's the tincture kind, which is maybe a little too far with the folly. Like me reading, you know, some misogynistic poetry at the poetry reading. It's that that was a, that was a strong medicine. But there's a little bit of medicine that just helps life to be more palatable. And I'm going to recommend a piece of folly to our audience here. There's something I've been doing for the past two years that brings me a little bit of joy every day, and it's a piece of folly that has no victim that will simply make your life a little bit more fun. And that is signing any receipt with whatever you darn well please. (laughs) I realized this, that nobody cares. No one cares. The bank never checks. I have never gotten a message from my bank and I haven't signed my name to a receipt in two years. You can sign whatever you want to. I think today I signed like president of the gooses Donald (laughs) or something. And it never comes back. The, the I have never had a check returned to me or even had a person question me on my signature. I know that in, in Europe, I think they check a little mm. more Is it a studiously. check or is it receipts? Well, they, they would check for the, oh, oh, the, on the receipt. The receipt oh, yeah, to make you sure do it, it on matched. a check. Sorry, I thought you were saying it. Was on a, a check, check, you'd have to do yeah, it. Like, but on like insane. receipts, you yeah. can sign whatever you dang well please. Have yeah. a little fun with it. Enjoy yeah. it. And it's but the you same. wouldn't do that for like 
like you know your mortgage payment or you know yeah, or, there or, or like signing your name to something if it's like a if it's like a one thousand dollars or more i usually sign my actual name to that because i don't want that coming back um but if it's like a coffee man have some fun with it that's a little bit of folly that can have you know bring your life a little bit of joy and it's, i've i've bear, borne witness to it bringing a little bit of joy to the servers when they turn it around and look and it says like Poop Lord, Poop Lord Jr. And uh, and they're I like, I've that's hilarious. All right. Well, there you go. That's that's it for today. Cool. Folly, a well, good piece of life. Um, yeah, I, this has been classical stuff. I still think that the it's a really the really interesting question is like, is this a pro classical mm. or an anti classical work? Mm. And I don't, and I think the very fact that it it clearly is coming from the classical tradition. The man is classically right. educated. That's what, yeah, and but it pokes it is, fun at monks, and he's a monk. And yeah. it, and it, but it and is. And it's more than, it's 500 years um, old, so it must be So true. is Erasmus the yeah. thinker that eventually turned into William Blake, which uh, eventually turned into the, like, do what you feel like movement? I would say that. I don't know. Or is... Um, I would I would say that he, he is pointing out dangers and follies and things that are praised unhealthily. Like, mm-hmm. when he talked about monks... And, and I think in the classical tradition, we, we tend to overpraise monks. He no, points monks out that there are times when they like walk around and wail for food and ignore charity when other people need the food. And they're huge. Like they've had way too much food. And they have all of these small works. Like I've never touched money except when my hands were covered by two gloves. And they go up and they tell this to Jesus. I really wanted to read this passage, but we just didn't have time. And he's like, yes, but... You never actually did charity. You never touched a piece of money, but you never actually gave to the poor or served the poor, which is like the one thing I told you to do. Mm-hmm. You've never even met your neighbor, right? And and so I think overpraising things that sometimes were just as fallible as the rest of human yeah. life can be a problem. Fa- uh, folly is course correction. Hmm. Yeah. Yes, folly anyway, is course correction. Uh, so this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. You can email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can... Tweet at us at School Stuff, C L S S C A L, stuff on the Twitterverse. And <laughs> I will, a place of no folly. Um, <laughs> Everything is austere and dignified <laughs> in the Twitterverse. And um, you can also find us at classicalstuff.net and um, and you can listen to it. Well, you're listening to us. You know how to find yeah. us on Send us on, emails on, and say hi and tell us the stuff we got wrong yeah. and tell me who Erasmus is and how I mispronounced all the names and all that stuff. Yeah, one thing I know we got wrong, maybe this is probably good for uh, a podcast about uh, folly is um, uh, Fanny's name in uh, w- with British slang is it's not, not slang not, for bum it's not the bum but anyway so um, <laughs> that has been you, yeah you can google if you feel so impl- inclined will not enlighten That's you right. on that one so that has been classical stuff you should know uh, and this is Graham AJ and Thomas signing off bye